NPR. This is The Indicator from Planet Muddy. I'm Jerry Woods. And I'm Waylon Wong. Last month, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman posted a video on the social media platform X. It's an overcast day, and he's wearing a black hoodie. Trademark black hoodie. Of course. (laughs) And behind him, you can see smoke coming out of a factory smokestack. I'm standing on the roof of my home right here in Braddock, Pennsylvania, right across the street from the Edgar Thompson plant. John Fetterman lives across from a plant that the company U.S. Steel has operated for over a century. And that same day he posted the video... U.S. Steel announced that it had agreed to be acquired by Japanese company Nippon Steel for $15 billion. And I just have to say it's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation. The senator's comments are reminiscent of what politicians were saying back in the 1980s. This was a decade when some lawmakers were alarmed about what they saw as a Japanese takeover of the American economy. In 1989, Representative Helen Delich Bentley of Maryland went on C-SPAN to air her grievances. Because I have been very concerned for a long time and have spoken out many times about the Japan taking over our industry, about the uh, actual conspiracy of the Ministry of International Trade and Industry with Japanese businesses and industries to destroy various industries of ours. Some pretty strong language there. So how do we get to this point? Today on the show, we look back at the 80s to explore what produced this period of economic tensions between the U.S. and Japan and why a new round of anxieties is complicating the sale of U.S. steel. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor E-Trade from Morgan Stanley. Take control of your financial future with E-Trade. No matter what kind of investor you are, their tools and resources can help you be ready for what's next. Now when you open an account, you can get up to $1,000 with a qualifying deposit. Terms apply. Learn more at etrade.com slash NPR. Investing involves risks. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC. Member SIPC. E-Trade is a business of Morgan Stanley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Arctic Wolf. Their researchers have released the Arctic Wolf Lab's 2024 threat report. Why will 2024 be a volatile year for cybersecurity? Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com NPR. After the destruction of World War II, Japan's economy underwent what's called the Japanese economic miracle. Starting in the 1950s, the country went on a tear, becoming the world's second largest economy. And the U.S. played a role in making this happen. Kenji Kushida runs Japan Research and Programming at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Part of this is a Japan story of what went right, but it's also a story of the global context, where Japan was the closest ally to the U.S. in the Cold War in Asia. And so the U.S. was very happy to help the Japanese economy grow. Even after the U.S. ended its occupation, it kept supporting Japan's economy. The U.S. helped Japan get low-cost loans to fund domestic industry. And the U.S. government promoted Japanese exports by opening its own market to everything from textiles to stainless steel flatware. 
By some estimates, the U.S. was buying more than a third of Japanese-made stuff in the 1970s. This included consumer electronics, and it also included cars. High gas prices meant American car owners wanted smaller and more fuel-efficient vehicles. Those were the cars coming from Japan. And then in the early 1980s, the U.S. fell into a recession. And Kenji says a lot of lawmakers and business leaders in the U.S. felt like the U.S. was getting a raw deal on trade. Japanese exports were surging in the U.S., while the Japanese market remained more closed off to American goods. The recession was especially hard on U.S. automakers, which were hit by plant closures and mass layoffs. Rapid industrial adjustment is very painful. A lot of people lose their jobs, and this is filtered through uh, politics and media, where you do want to identify an enemy. Why is it that you lost your job? Oh, it's your company, but your company let go of you because they were getting out-competed. Well, who's the one competing against us? And at the time, it was Japanese companies competing against them. Memories of World War II were still fresh for a lot of Americans. There were reports of bumper stickers that read, Toyota, Datsun, Honda, Pearl Harbor. And there were protests where people smashed Japanese cars with baseball bats. In 1982, two auto workers in Detroit killed a Chinese-American man named Vincent Chin. Witnesses said the men were angry about their industry losing jobs to Japanese competition. The backlash against Japanese companies made its way into policy. There was a flurry of trade restrictions and other agreements aimed at fixing the trade imbalance. These deals covered sectors like steel, cars, semiconductors and pharmaceuticals. And then Kenji says two things happened that ultimately brought an end to this period of intense trade friction. One is that the Japanese asset bubble burst. In 1990, Japanese real estate and stock prices had gotten very inflated by the late 80s. When the bubble burst, the Japanese economy entered a deep malaise. This period came to be known as Japan's lost decade. And the second thing that happened in the 1990s was the U.S. economy staged a comeback, powered by Silicon Valley and the computer industry. Sectors that were outcompeted by Japan, a lot of them did get decimated, but the entrepreneurial dynamism of the U.S. created higher-value-added industries, software, computers. This was the era of Microsoft Windows domination. In the following decades, Silicon Valley would introduce Google and the iPhone to the world. The fear that Japan would take over the American economy receded. But today, with Nippon Steel trying to buy U.S. steel, a new round of anxieties is coming to the surface. Shohoko Goto is the director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. There is a lot of emotional tie to this industry, and that has captured a lot of the U.S. public imagination, which doesn't necessarily um, look into how this deal actually makes economic sense. It makes sense for Nippon Steel because it wants access to an American market that is expected to grow over the next few years, thanks to the Biden administration's subsidies for infrastructure and domestic advanced manufacturing. Nippon Steel also wants to bulk up to compete with China's dominance in the steel industry. And it's prepared to pay 40% more than what U.S. Steel's share price was before the deal was announced. Okay, it's a pretty tempting deal for U.S. Steel, I imagine. Maximizing shareholder value, Darian. Yes, indeed. And Shohoko says the deal does make sense for U.S. Steel, too. She points out that the company slipped in the global rankings of steel producers, and it's dropped from the top 10 to number 27. 
In fact, the deal makes sense for the entire American steel industry. The U.S. used to be the biggest steel producer in the world. Today, it's the fourth. But more importantly, it's way behind China. Even with protective measures like tariffs and Buy American requirements, the American steel industry is still struggling to compete with a huge glut of cheaper Chinese steel that's flooded the market. By letting Nippon Steel buy U.S. steel, that allows it to bolster one of its big allies, Japan, as a counterweight to China. And Chihoko says this isn't the only area where the U.S. is teaming up to push back against China. For example, Japan has joined the U.S. in restricting semiconductor shipments to China. We see the United States talking about needing countries like Japan to protect its most advanced technologies. And yet, on the other hand, turning around and saying, well, we can't necessarily trust foreign entities to buy um, U.S. assets. And so there is this kind of disconnect between the actual rhetoric and the action taken by the United States in the name of national security concerns. U.S. steel leadership wants to sell the company to Nippon Steel. You can probably think that 40 percent premium. But the Steelworkers Union says U.S. steel is being greedy, and it doubts Nippon Steel will honor the commitments in its labor agreements. Meanwhile, President Biden's national economic advisor said the deal, quote, appears to deserve serious scrutiny, end quote. Shahoko expects the deal to come under review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And this is a committee with representatives from departments like the Treasury, Homeland Security and Defense. And it looks at foreign investment deals that involve national security. This review process could stretch on for months, and that could add delays to the deal in a year that's already complicated by the presidential election. U.S. Steel is headquartered in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state. This could make the fate of this storied American company and the state of U.S.-Japan relations into a political flashpoint. This episode was produced by Julia Ritchie with engineering by Sina Lafredo. It was fact-checked by Angel Carreras and edited by Patty Hirsch. The Indicator is a production of NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.